a hunger for your word. The following sermon is a ministry of Lakewood Bible Chapel, where our desire is to faithfully proclaim God's word so that his people might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please join us now as we open up the scriptures together. Chris, can you shut those windows? Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. So good to sing the praises of our Lord together, to turn our eyes upon Jesus uh, together as a congregation, and to give him praise and worship for what he's done for us uh, on the cross at Calvary. Uh, Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the 42nd Psalm. Psalm 42. <clears throat> this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a masculine of the sons of Korah. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 42. This is God's word. As the deer pants for the water brooks, So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall praise him for the salvation of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the, and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as a shattering of my bones and my adversaries reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God, our Heavenly Father, We pray that you would speak to our hearts through this text, that you would encourage our hearts through this text because of the profundity of the realities with which which is in it. And we pray that you would be glorified in this time, that you would speak to us through this time. You'd be with us in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Why... Are you in despair, O oh my soul? 
know, in my preparation for this passage, I came across uh, some interesting and, frankly, some unfortunate material, papers, studies, sermons, several articles on the church's response to the topic of depression, which up until a couple centuries ago was more commonly known as melancholy, and before that, various phrases were used to describe a general downcast or despondency, in term, including the term used by the old mystics, actually Noel said it this morning, the dark night of the soul. Now, of course, there are many uh, conditions, uh, many physical maladies and contributing factors to a person's mental well-being, which psychologists and psychiatrists and physicians have attempted to sort through and explain for centuries, but that's not really what concerned me, and that's not the path that we're going to go down this morning here. What concerned me, again, was what I found in a lot of these resources as it pertained to the church's response uh, to men and women who suffer under this weight Again, uh, sermons, books, commentaries written by reputable theologians who've given their opinion on how the church should respond to folks who are experiencing seasons of despondency or melancholy. And again, so many different factors, so many different situations that should be addressed individually, but so, so many poor responses and unhelpful counsel out there Uh, coming out of some churches and some pulpits, including phrases like the oft-well-intentioned, you should just pray away the feeling. You need to ask God to take this from you. You need to let go and let God. Or they'll say, you know, God doesn't want Christians to be sad. We are a happy people. Flee from these feelings of sadness and just be happy. That's been the motto of mainline American evangelicalism. Uh, You know it. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Happy all the day? Happy all the day? Who can say that? I'll have what she's having. That's not realistic, is it? And the problem with that type of wishful thinking that is that it's only a matter of time before the discussion goes from general exhortations to just be happy Christian to, well, you must not have enough faith to overcome your sadness. Or this is just God's way of testing your faith. Even worse, I read of people being told by some leaders in the churches it's sinful to be depressed. It's sinful to be dismayed. Uh, A few years ago, a well-known singer and songwriter in her mid-30s, she shared a story of a lifelong management with depression in the church. In this article, she said, I have experienced the best and the worst of faith-based responses to my mental health. Excuse me, faith-based responses to my mental health. At its worst, I have experienced utter rejection from the church. Other times, I have been counseled to absorb my sufferings as a punishment for my sins And a call to repentance. I read the same thing over and over again. It's sinful to be be depressed. You are a disappointment to God if you are continually downcast. Or uh, God must be punishing you for some sin. You should find out what that is and repent. Or my personal favorite. 
uh, prolonged discouragement, prolonged despondency, despair, depression, is an ungodly emotion which needs to be mortified. And I thought, an ungodly emotion? What about that other song which we know of, which is actually based on scriptures? You know, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. You know, the one who was despised and forsaken of men, who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like from one whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Sounds familiar. The same one who came to a place called Gethsemane, who began to be grieved and distressed. The one who said to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved. It's deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. Keep watch with me. My soul is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. Luke says, and in the same garden here, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Well, Here's the question, then. Why didn't the angel just put his hand upon the shoulder of the Lord and say, you know, this is an ungodly emotion, God. You know, you're really embarrassing your father here. Just be happy, Jesus. Or even worse, you you need to repent, sinless son of God. Psalm 42 is a record of a man who suffered under the weight of tremendous despair and despondency, a depression of sorts. And again, it's a masculine. It's a psalm of instruction. It's a teaching psalm given to the choir director to sing in the great assembly, uh, to, be, to have music put to it, sung by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we don't know what son of Korah this is here, or even who the actual psalmist is, not in this psalm, nor in Psalm 43, which is... Uh, thought to be one psalm together in its original form. Some think it was King David who then gave it to the sons of Korah to arrange to give to the choir masters. Some think it could have been Asaph. But that's not important to know or else we'd know, right? What's important is that the choir master didn't toss this masculine in the trash and say, oh, we couldn't possibly share this with God's people. It's an ungodly emotion. And uh, the congregation, they might think you don't have enough faith if we sing this. That didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. Why not? Well, because God himself inspired it. The psalmist penned it. The sons of Korah arranged it. The choir director put it to music. The congregation sung it, and the people learned from it. Uh, They they took its principles to heart, which is exactly what we're going to do today, Lord willing. The psalmist starts off with a very familiar verse, and it describes an emotion experienced by every true believer at some point or another, a deep thirst, a yearning, a longing for not physical but spiritual satisfaction. He writes, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God, Elohim. 
There's only one who can truly satisfy the spiritual longing of mine. There's only one who can satiate the deep thirst of my weary and sorrowful soul. I am spiritually dehydrated. I am parched. I am arid, barren, bone dry. And if this thirst of mine isn't quenched, my soul may soon shrivel up and die. That's what he's saying. He says in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He knows only the living God can satisfy, not the dead gods of pagan culture, not the physical or emotional idols crafted by the hands or through the wicked imaginations of his fellow man. Oh no, he needs the life-giving water provided only from the living God, and he's not the least bit ashamed or afraid to let everyone know about it. Sing this in the great assembly. When shall I come and appear before God, he says. When can I come into your presence? He has a deep, deep desire to be with his God in this sanctuary and forevermore. He is wandering through the sun-scorched wilderness of spiritual life. Water is scarce, and the panting will not cease until he lowers his head and drinks from the brooks of communion with the living God. Let me just ask you right from the get-go here. Does your soul often pant to be in the presence of the living God? Does your soul pant for the living God? Are you thirsty for the living God? Are you tired of placing your trust in the transitory things of this world which can never satisfy? Are you like the doe who wanders the plains in search of the brook which will quench her deepest thirst? Is that you? Good, if so. Good. Verses 1 and 2 are not a bad place for us to be. In fact, they're a great place for us to be. Uh, Thirsting after God is a great place to be. Why? Well, because it reveals your desire for life-giving water, which he and only he can provide. And he does provide. In fact, this same living God supplies this water in abundance, water which satisfies both now and forevermore. So the psalmist continues his instruction in verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Here we see two external circumstances which contribute to his despondency. First, he's literally eating his tears. Tears are flowing down his cheeks into his mouth because of the taunts of his oppressors who will pop back up in verses 9 and 10. These men who say, where is your God? Where is he? Surely the Lord is not with you if you are in such a pitiable state here. You know, this is a good reminder for us to surround ourselves with good company. Surround yourself with those who can encourage you. And the promises of the Lord is revealed in his word. This world abounds with those who would like to drive you deeper into the pit of despair. For the old saying holds true, misery loves company. And they won't hesitate for a second to fan the flames of doubting God's love so that you can join them in the mire. Notice second how the psalmist laments over his absence from the gathering together of like-minded men and women. He remembers in this hour of despair how he used to go up 
uh, with the throng to the house of God, a reference to either the temple built by Solomon or the tabernacle uh, during the time of David before him. He'll go on in verse 6 to say that he's in a different geographical location here, Mount Mizar. It's a little mountain hill or peak on the eastern ridge of the mountains of Lebanon in the northern part of the Transjordan. It's almost up to Syria. But that's not the point. The point is this. Uh, he has, for some reason or another, been separated from the household of God, from the people of God, the people who, he said, he even led up in procession to worship the true and living God. So here's another tangible contributor to his despondency here. He remembers back to the day when he was being nourished alongside other members of the congregation, when he was in the city of God, when he was in the house of God, with the people of God, giving praises to his God, which is exactly what we're all doing here together this morning, right? So let's not take it for granted. This guy was in despair because he was away from the congregation. How do we feel? For whatever reason, this was taken away from him as he saw the structure atop Mount Moriah in Jerusalem fade into the distance as he headed off to a new region. This caused his soul to yearn for what used to be felt like he had lost that communion. Now, this psalm it has two refrains, okay? Two, movement, or two moments where he says, okay, let me stop here and just regather myself for a minute here. One of these moments comes in verse 5, where he both outright declares his soul sickness and also provides for the people the antidote, okay? The antidote for his soul's anguish as he leads them to the brook of the living God which he longed for back in verse 1. And notice who he begins to speak to here in verse 5. He says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? He begins to talk, not to other people, not even to the Lord at this point, but who? Himself. That's right. He begins to reason with himself, even rebuke himself for going so deep into the pit. Why are you in despair? Why are you acting like one who has no hope? And because of these temporary things, the homesickness of, the te- of being apart from the temple, the chatter of ungodly men, why are you letting these things get to you? What, what is the meaning of this despair, O oh my soul? Now, talking out loud to yourself and asking questions like this of yourself is perfectly normal. Uh, It's it's when you begin responding to yourself that you may have a problem. (laughs) Like the other day, I said to myself, uh, is it normal to be talking to myself? And I replied back to myself, yes, it's perfectly normal. And so I agreed with myself, and I said, oh, thank God. (laughs) Now, don't miss this instruction here, okay? Don't miss the example of the psalmist who speaks truth into his own soul. Don't miss how, instead of letting his emotions speak their truth to his soul, dictating their reality, he lets his soul know what he knows to be true. Let's that truth dictate his reality, okay? Not just his emotions. He says, why? Why are you in despair? Why are you so disturbed within me, soul? Why? Why are you grieved, distressed, profoundly sorrowful is the meaning of this word despair. Why? Jesus knew uh, why his, he was deeply grieved, right? He knew what was inevitable. 
He had great reason to be deeply grieved. He knew he would soon drink from the cup of God's righteous wrath. He knew he would soon be separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity as he would bear the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him and call upon his name, all those who belonged to him, as he cried, please, Father, if there's any other way. But the psalmist says to his soul here, why are you so depressed? You're not going to be separated from God in that sense. You're just moving out of town. And then he speaks some sense into the situation here. He reminds himself of truth. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, wait for God. I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, which I would recommend to everybody. You can even listen to it on his app, MLJ Trust. They're just sermons. It's a collection of sermons on the topic. He elaborates on the psalmist speaking to himself here, saying, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? (laughs) Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc., Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. He says, now this man's treatment of, uh, in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou, thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Lloyd-Jones went on to say, after this, you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God has done and uh, what God is and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself. Defy other people. Defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of my, his countenance. It was also the health of my countenance and my God. That's good stuff. The issue is, however, even after we've gained assurance because we live in a corrupted and cursed earth, it's not long before we go right back into the pit, right? Even when we know the truth. This guy can't even get out of the psalm without falling back into despair. And that's just how it's going to be in this life. That's just how it is. This going back and forth between trouble and truth, trials and truth, tribulation and truth. And I hate to disappoint you here, uh, but not a one of us will be fully cured of this until we're in glory. This is your life. (laughs) But in the meantime, uh, while there's no full cure in this fallen world in our current state, we can repeatedly put the balm of God's truth upon our weary souls. We can, we can put the salve of God's promises upon our souls of sorrow. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 11, which we'll get back to in a moment. First, look at uh, verses 6 through 10. He describes even more reasons for his despair. But notice this time, it's in direct address to God, saying, okay, all of Israel, choir master, you have this masculine. Now sell it, tell it to the people in Israel. Listen to what I prayed to God, and not just any God, but my God. This is a deeply personal address that we're given a glimpse into here this morning. He says, oh my God, my soul is in, dis- in despair within me. Therefore, 
I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar, or Mazar, however you want to pronounce it. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppressions of my enemies? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries reproach me. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is he? Two thoughts on this section here. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. This is his way of saying, I hear you in creation. I can hear the waterfalls that you created, which were said to have been present in this, these northern mountain ranges. I, I hear the waterfalls, but they're only reminding me of the fact that I'm bobbing up and down in a tumultuous ocean of despair only to every once in a while be given the opportunity to come up for a gulp of oxygen. And you know what, my God? You did this to me. You sent this to me, didn't you? You put me out here. Look, that's what he says in verse 7. I'm not just making that up. He said, your breakers, your waves roll over me. This is from you. You're allowing this. Then, just when it looks like all hope is lost, you can see him begin to realize the reality of God's sovereign hand in these afflictions as his nose and his mouth begin to break through that water's surface, right? He starts to remind himself, yeah, God is sovereign over this situation. He's not aloof to my feelings of drowning beneath the waves. He's not absent from me in my time of greatest needs. In fact, if I'm, I, I know I'm one of his And I know his steadfast, loyal love for those who are his. He will be faithful to me. I know he will. He won't let me be overcome with this grief and despair. You know, this is a good reminder to us, another good reminder, that we have to show compassion to our brothers and sisters who are in the midst of the storms of life. They're battling this tremendous tension in their souls, right? Can you see the tension here in Psalm 42? Can you see this? Can you see the turmoil within this man's soul? This this wrestling match between his soul and his emotions, his suffering amidst God's sovereignty. Do you see it? One of my favorite uh, preachers and theologians of all time, Charles Spurgeon, certainly recognized this tension as he struggled with deep, deep bouts of depression. And he sought to determine God's role in it even his sovereign appointment of it. Uh, He said, at one point, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I know not what I wept for. He said, uh, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. He He said, one may as well fight with the mist, is with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. Might as well fight with the mist. Uh, But Spurgeon didn't waver in his trust of God's sovereignty over his affliction. In fact, he said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. 
Now listen to this. In another place, he wrote, I'm afraid that all, of, all the grace I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. He said, affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Needless to say, Spurgeon wasn't a seeker-sensitive preacher. Praise the Lord. Why not? Well, because he knew that God used these afflictions, including depression, to shape him. Even his opponents, using his opponents, his enemies who frequently slandered him, they continually questioned his qualifications to be a minister, even raised suspicion of his being a believer at all. Spurgeon. He used these men, these enemies of his, to mold Spurgeon, to conform Spurgeon into his image so that he could then go on and tell others how they can be encouraged in times of depression so that he can then effectively minister to others through the truths of God's word, just like the psalmist is doing here. Psalm 42. The psalmist who has the exact same battles, notice, secondly, how his enemies show up again in verse 10, again saying, where is your God? (laughs) Where is he? He's abandoned you. He's left you. He hates you. They're like Job's wife. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die already. Same thing here. Where is this so-called almighty God of you? Why are you in this pathetic state? You know what? The psalmist, he begins to believe it in verse 9. Look at that. He said, I, I said to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He actually started to believe it for a minute. But again, just as he did before, he goes back to the antidote for his soul anguish. And again, so he, began, again he begins to talk to himself instead of letting his emotions, his opponents, his enemies, or the devil talk to him. Verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him. The salvation of my presence and my God. The anguish? My soul is in despair. My soul is deeply disturbed. The antidote? Wait for God. Praise God. Rest in what you know to be true about God. That's Psalm 42. Now let me ask you all something this morning. Okay, seriously, be honest. Be honest now. Would this man's life be better or worse had he not had to endure this affliction? Would this man's faith in God be stronger or weaker if everything around him went swimmingly from day to day? Would the people of Jerusalem during this time be better off? Would we be better off had this testimony of despair not been on the pages of Scripture, if there was one less psalm in the Psalter? Uh, Would we all have been better off if this man would have had no conflict in life, no chaos, no having been sent away for... Uh, from Jerusalem for whatever reason, no enemies, no slander, no backbiting, no gossip, just everyone telling him everything he wanted to hear every day, day in and day out. No debt, no sickness, no untimely deaths, no troubles at the office, no bickering with the wife, 
no struggles with the kids. Would he have been better off without the waves, without God's waves almost drowning him? With no despair, no depression, no disturbances within his soul? Would he, he have been better off if he had never panted after the living God as the deer pants for the water brooks? I would say a resounding no. Uh, in fact, like so many today in this world, I would say he would have been much, much worse off had he not gone through all of this because he wouldn't have recognized how extraordinarily dependent he was upon his Lord. I'll ask you the same question then. Would you be better off without any trials or any discouragement in your life? No. I mean, in the grand scheme of things. There would be a lot of preachers out there who will tell you that you will. I'm not one of them. Now, I don't want you to walk out of this place looking to get depressed, okay? That's, that's not my motivation here. I'm not celebrating depression here. I'm just saying don't be so quick to flee from or vilify these dark seasons of life. Let's not be so quick to perpetuate these nonsensical stigmas of depression and anxiety in the church. Instead, we ought to seek to glorify God in these times by responding to them in a biblical manner like the psalmist did here, okay? We all know that society is full of reasons for discouragement and despondency. I don't have to list them. We all have eyes. We all can see what life is like out in a corrupted and cursed world. So the question is not really if a believer will suffer with discouragement, depression, despair, despondency, or inner turmoil. The question is, How will we respond to it when it inevitably comes? How are we going to respond? And I believe this psalm gives us the perfect model in how to do so. And so I came up with an acronym based upon it. I know it's cheesy. I know it's cheesy. Salve. Okay? I couldn't avoid it here. I tried my hardest to shake it, but it kept coming back to me. Salve. My wife said, don't do that. Now, but then she heard it out. Okay, so hear me out. South. How should a believer respond when the waves of despair and depression seemingly overtake you? Understanding again, there are many contributing factors. Okay, there's external, internal, chemical, even. Yet, also understanding that not a one of these contributing factors uh, changes the reality of who God is. Or the examples and principles he put forth for us in Scripture. And that's the first thing that I would encourage us to do when we're in this situation. Okay, go to the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures through the power of his Spirit. Let the text be your ultimate authority and your ultimate guide for the rest of your life here on this earth. Okay, this is, this is where the one true living God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, this is how he speaks to you. This is how he talks to you in this generation. Not through visions, not through dreams, not through his incarnate son. He's not here. This is how he speaks with you. Okay? This is how we know him so that we can then trust him. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. It's true. When those counselors are resting in the authority of the inspired word, not just their own experiences. If your counsel 
isn't solely based on the authority of the inspired word of God, then find a new counselor. Get some new friends. There's wisdom in coming together here on every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, and hearing a sermon or listening to sermons or lectures online. It's true. If those sermons are based upon God's word and not man's word. If we should ever start pandering to the culture, preaching our own truths or philosophies, and these truths are not founded upon the word of God, find another church. Don't come here. You should leave. Listen to other sermons. Read other commentaries. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. They are infallible. They are inerrant, inspired, and they are absolutely sufficient. Okay? They're absolutely sufficient to guide true believers through life on this earth. He breathed it out. He inspired the scriptures to equip us, to train us, just like he's doing today. You're being trained up right now as you hear his word. He's training us in what is good and what is right and what is holy. And how does he do that? Who's the standard? Himself. So he reveals himself to us in the scriptures. He reveals his attributes to us in the scriptures. The the heavens declare the handiwork of God. He reveals himself in creation. It's true, but that revelation is just enough to damn a person to hell. You just know there's a creator. But he reveals his holy and righteous character as well as his marvelous plan of redemption through Christ in his word. You need this. You can't be saved by saying there's a tree over there and I didn't make it. You need to hear the gospel and the gospel is found in the scriptures. So we go from S to A because we want to learn the attributes of God. We need to know the attributes. Yeah, we can see our creator is powerful. The creator made the earth and the grass and the trees and the beasts of the fields, the mountains, the oceans, the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun. But the scriptures tell us that the beasts of the field are his possession. Scripture tells us that he knows each star by name. Scripture tells us, for he set the sea in its boundary so that the water would not pass his command. He rules the swelling of the sea when its waves rise. He stills them. That's important to know when he allows them to come crashing over and around us, isn't it? He tells the waves where to go. In the same way, we must know of his other attributes, including his incomprehensibility. We can't fathom or comprehend his greatness in our finiteness. But he has revealed some of his character to us, right? His immutability. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which again is important for us to know when he makes promises to us, right? When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. How do we know that to be absolutely true if he can just change his mind tomorrow? We couldn't take a word he said seriously, but he doesn't change, so we can trust him. We have to know his attributes so that we can trust him and then wait upon him like the psalmist. We should constantly strive to know his attributes, his character, know and trust in his sovereignty. His wisdom, his omnipotence, his transcendence. He transcends time and space. 
He's not limited to time or space like we are. His mercy, his goodness, his justice, it's all perfectly culminating in his holiness, his glory. We have to know about his loyalty, his loyal love, right? His steadfast love. We've seen it throughout the Psalms, this chesed, this faithful, loyal love for those who are his. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the gall. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. My soul is bowed down? What do you think he's talking about here? This weeping prophet. This I will return to my heart, therefore I will wait in hope. The loving kindness of Yahweh indeed never cease loving kindnesses, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will wait for him. Go and do likewise, brothers and sisters. Go to the scriptures. Learn about his character, his attributes. Rest in his loyal love. He will not forsake those who belong to him. He will not abandon you in your weakest hour. He will not leave you if you belong to him. You, you, you have to trust that when life on this earth inevitably goes awry. You have to be able to trust in your surety. And the only way to do that is to know him. <clears throat> this is the hope. And this is a hope that only the believer has access to. Only believers are the recipient of his steadfast, loyal love. The world that knows nothing of this kind of hope. This is why they seek to rid themselves of despair with all kinds of things. Money, and power, and influence, success in business, and government, status, sports, entertainment, sex, drugs, alcohol, gender reassignment, surgery. I mean, you name it. This world offers an endless supply of faux remedies to alleviate spiritual despair, but only the loyal love of the living God can satisfy and appease our deepest and eternal longings. Only him. And there's no greater manifestation of his loyal love than in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect son, whom he sent into this world to die a sacrificial death on a Roman cross, that he might reconcile sinful men and women to himself for all of eternity. When we are tempted to despair, we must remember to seek him in the scriptures. We must know his attributes. We must depend fully upon his loyal character. And we must remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world to conquer sin, to conquer the devil to declare victory over his enemies, including death itself. Again, Lloyd-Jones says, I rest my faith on him alone who died for my transgressions to atone. We must know him. Never forget, my brothers and sisters, amidst the discouragements of this life, Never forget the tremendous price that your infinitely holy God paid to reconcile you to himself. He gave his son. Never forget that and never forget what that means in terms of his keeping you, both in this life and forevermore. Paul in Romans 8 says, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He asked, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. You know, this is a far cry from God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) Is, Is Paul denying that bad things will happen in this life? Is that what we see here? Is, is he denying that waves of turmoil and despair and mourning will come upon the Christian? Is he saying, now that I am in Christ, I'm just happy, happy, happy all the day long? Look at me. Four chapters later, he's going to say, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Paul says, we mourn as believers. But the mourning of a believer is different from the mourning of those who have no hope. He's saying this life is unbearable at times, but the believer has true happiness, true hopefulness, true blessedness, as we've seen over these past few psalms. A peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that whatever comes my way, I'm secure in the loyal love of my Lord. And I'm victorious because he was victorious, and he is victorious. Paul says in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a rope we can grab onto in this life. Know that text. Rest in that text. Remind yourself of that text. Preach this text to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel that says you are secure through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're secure in him. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Indeed, he cannot if you belong to him because he has sealed you with his very spirit until that day when he calls you home to glory. And it's at that moment when your depression is cured forever. For now, we battle. For now, we fight. For now, we depend upon and hunker down behind our mighty fortress. But on that day when we behold him face to face, we will be rid of all of our despair in a place where there are no more tears to eat, where there are no more enemies, there are no more slanders, there is no more sickness or surgeries, no more picking stuff up at the pharmacy, no more broken relationships, no more broken marriages, no more kids turning away from the faith, 
proving they were never of us. No more doubts. No more despair. No more devil. There's no more oppression. There's no more affliction. There's no more anguish of our souls. No more tension. It's a time, Jesus said, when we will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat for the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and will guide them to the springs of water of life. The springs of the water of life. He says God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Would that be nice? On that day, our, deep, our deepest longings will be truly satisfied, eternally satisfied, as the stain of sin will be no more. No more sin, no more curse, no more corruption. That's a day worth looking forward to, right? Then do it. Look forward to it. Uh, Go to the scriptures. Know the character of your God. Rest in his character. Rest in his loyal love. Remember the victory that is yours in Christ and let the thought of eternity in his presence consume your hearts and your minds. Amen? Amen. If there are any here today who would like to know more about what it means to be a believer in Christ, I would plead with you, come and talk to me uh, after this. Or if if you're a believer, you're struggling to find solid ground ground amidst the waves of despair, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or Thomas or Chris or Brad. We'll be happy to come alongside you uh, in this time. For now, let's praise the Lord in musical worship giving him thanks for his steadfast love and the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, the great I am. The creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning from the end and all in between. And yet, you looked upon us with mercy and grace even though we sinned against you, committed great transgression against you. Not only did you look upon us with your grace and mercy, Lord, but you revealed yourself to us even more fully in your word, including your righteous character, who you are, what you've done for us. We're just in awe at what you've done for us through Christ. We're in awe that you have chosen us from before the foundation of the world. We're in awe that you sustained us to the point where we could hear these wonderful truths. We're in awe that you keep us and you will keep us to eternity. Lord, I pray for anybody here who's suffering under the weight, the burden of despondency and downcastness and despair. Lord, I pray that you would, if it's your will, Ease the burden unless, Lord, you're going to bring a good work through it. And then I pray that this congregation would come together. We would come around this brother or sister and minister to them through your word. We're just so thankful for your word, Lord. We're so thankful for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.